Father, thank you for um, this morning, the opportunity to get in your word together to continue to talk about worship and um, <clears throat> who you are and how you command us to worship. Pray that you would be honored this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Um, so last week I was giving you guys sort of a, a short overview biblical theology of worship, and I, I kind of want to just review those points really quickly, the first half, and then jump into the rest of it. So you kind of got part one. The guys who missed last week, um, you'll get sort of a quick overview. The guys who were are missing this week, they're going to miss the, the rest of the, the discussion. But um, last week I talked about we we're created, the first point I made is we we're created for worship of the Creator. We're created for worship of the Creator as priests of the covenant Lord in his garden temple and commanded to spread the garden temple across the earth, if you will. So if you start with the beginning of the story of Genesis 1 and 2, the first proposition I made is that, that God created us for worship and he created us as priests in his garden temple and he commanded us to spread the garden temple across the world. So Adam and Eve were supposed to do what? Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. You just follow that, okay? All right. Um, the second proposition I made last week was we became worshipers of the creature rather than the creator. Thus, under the covenant curse, we were kicked out of the garden temple. Right? Okay? The third, the Mormon's alarm, that's what you're hearing there. Hopefully they'll stop. Um, I think they're hearing too much orthodox theology in one place. <laughs> All right. The, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. All right. Um, all right, the, the third proposition is the covenant Lord promised to return to us, the, uh, excuse me, return us to the blessing of being his worshipers. In other words, bringing us back into the garden temple, taking us back to the land, if you will. The fourth proposition was the covenant Lord established regulations for worship of himself among his covenant people in their daily living and in their corporate gatherings, calling them, in fact, a nation of priests. Right, Exodus 19 through 20. And then the fifth proposition, the covenant Lord recorded his requirements for his worship in his book, which we have here. Here's how you worship me. Not just who you worship, but how you worship me. It's recorded here. You follow that? Okay. The sixth one was the covenant Lord required holy observance of his regulations for worship among his covenant people. So I went to Le Le uh, Leviticus 10 and we talked about uh, Nadab and Abihu and God you know, them offering strange fire and God taking them out. Essentially saying, listen, I'm holy, I'm not to be trifled with, etc. James, can I get you to move over here so I can see that group there? Oh, yeah. Is that cool? Yeah. Um, That's too good. No, yeah, yeah, you're good, Kyle. All right. Um, the, uh, uh, I know. That's because I took a shower. All right. <laughs> the seventh proposition is the covenant Lord's mission was to spread his worship throughout all nations building them into a holy temple. And so we, we went over the passages relevant to that. And that's where I stopped. In other words, what I wanted to do was tie mission to worship. So if God's created us for worship and we've turned away from him, he's told us we worship him alone, and he's told us how we worship him. He's told us he'll redeem us so that we can be his worshipers, because as those who've turned from the worship of creator to creature, we're condemned. So he said, well, he'll, I'll redeem you from that state. It's also true that he said, I want my worship to spread across the earth. That was true in the creation, not just the fall. right? And it's also true in the fall, 
that he wants his worship spread across the earth. And so he announces redemption and tells us to that, that it's expected that it will go to all the nations. You guys follow? All right. So that's the reason I put that in there is I wanted you to understand that mission is a subset of worship. In other words, the purpose of mission is worship. Right? Um, which if you want more on that, I would encourage you to go get John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad, and read chapter one. Let the Nations Be Glad. It's probably, I, th- I think, one of the more important books you can read in your life. Um, the first four chapters particularly, but, but I would tell you chapter one just on this, this issue alone. All right. Um, regard to missions. So those were the first seven propositions. Now I'm going to move through the rest of the propositions I made and then ask what are the implications of all that, right? Some of the implications are coming out, but I want to drive into those. The implications may stun you a little, so I want you to stay with me, right? All right, um, here's the eighth proposition. The covenant Lord only ever had one true worshiper. Hear that? Covenant Lord only ever had one true worshiper, one true temple who brought him glory the great high priest. Now, who am I talking about? Jesus. In other words, what did Adam fail to be? True worshiper, right? Mm -hmm. What has everyone failed to be, Israel and everyone else failed to be since then? True worshipers. You guys follow me on that? They have failed to bring the Lord glory in all things, all the time. Mm -hmm. So Jesus comes. Now, the stunner about Jesus when he comes, he is a worshiper of the Lord. We know that because he says things like, uh, my father's will is my food. It's what I eat. Right? In other words, he, he makes this, this concept, whatever he says, I do. Everything I do is for his glory. That's worship. Do you follow me on that? So Jesus was a worshiper. You say, but wasn't Jesus the second person of the Trinity? How can he be a worshiper? Because he's a man. Yes, he's the second member of the Trinity. But he's also a man. Right? He is in our place. It's incredibly important that I, I, I can't repeat Christology because we've already done that. But it's incredibly important that you not lose sight of the fact that Jesus was a man. He had to be a man, fully a man, to be our representative. So he had to do everything that Adam failed to do, that Israel failed to do, that we failed to do. You guys follow me on that? He had to do all that in being a true worshiper. He was also a man in who, who, who himself was the temple of God. Does Jesus not say that about himself? Uh, perhaps the most key verse there is, is when John says it about Jesus in the prologue in John 1.14. The word became flesh, and he tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. We translate it dwelt among us, but the word is tabernacle. You know, you know where that word comes from, right? The tabernacle of God in the Old Testament, where the, the Shekinah glory of God dwells. Um, he is the one in whom the glory of God is dwelling, um, and he is the great high priest, right? We don't need any other mediators because there's one mediator between God and man. Now notice this, the man Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? Not the God Jesus Christ, the man Jesus Christ, because he is the one who has stood in the gap. You guys follow me on that? All right, I'm not going to repeat all of Christology, but I just want to drive that home. In other words, the Lord made a covenant with us. He made it with Adam. Who kept it? Jesus. 
Okay? Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father in everything. The, the Lord made another covenant with essentially the serpent to some degree, right? Or a promise to the serpent, but the covenant being with Abraham ultimately. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then who kept it? Jesus. You, you follow the point there? Yeah. there are, the covenants are kept in Christ. Okay, so let me get to the next point. The ninth proposition. Um, the covenant Lord graciously forgave our sins for worshiping false gods through the crushing of his only true worshiper in our place. Hear that? He graciously forgave our sins for worshiping false gods through the crushing of his only true worshiper in our place. <clears throat> so I just made the comment that Jesus is the only true worshiper. Now what I'm saying is God has crushed him in our place in order to forgive us. The only true worshiper. All right, so and, and he, he actually, what's interesting is, um, is mo he's more than bearing the curse for us. I want, to, I want you to hear that. He does more than bear the curse. It's important to understand he does bear the curse, but it's, he does more than that. So, okay, look, look at um, uh, Jeremiah 31 first with me. Um, and I, I, I want you to see this promise of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31. Jeremiah 2911. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, one it's one, only one people seem to know. <laughs> Jeremiah 31:31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Incidentally, that is not a small statement um, hermeneutically. In other words, with regard to our understanding of Scripture, um, the popular view out there is that there's a distinction between Israel and the church. But there's Israel, always Israel, and there's always the church, and these two groups are completely separate groups. The difficulty um, with that kind of supposition comes with a text like this, which I'm going to deal with in a couple weeks, incidentally. Um, I'll deal with that in a couple weeks as far as, uh, or next week. I'm going to say that the whole question of Israel and the church. But I want you to look at that. Who does God, make, who does God promise to make the new covenant with? House of Israel and the house of Judah. So I just want you to ask the question. Is that the only person he makes the new covenant with? Who does he in fact make the new covenant with? Church. So, did, the, did Jesus and the apostles not read the, new, the Old Testament literally? Or what's wrong with them? Because this clearly says he's making the new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Does it, doesn't it say that? Mm -hmm. So why does he make it with Gentiles? Any answers? Because Jesus is the true Israel. Because Jesus is the true Israel. Man, Jay. Wow. Are you a replacement theologian? Okay, all right. <laughs> so, uh... <laughs> Here's the question. This is this this is a big hermeneutical problem for those who run around with the quote unquote left behind theology. You guys know what I'm talking about? The, what is called dispensationalism. It's the most popular position in the church in America, by far, um, and they have a huge problem here because they they say 
literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic, which I agree with. I just don't agree with the way they employ it. And they say you've got to read the Old Testament just like a Jew would understand the Old Testament. But then the question becomes, what if Jesus and the apostles didn't read the Old Testament like you're saying a Jew would understand the Old Testament? What if they didn't? Because they, in fact, with regard to this verse, did not. Because Paul, what does Paul call himself a minister of? The new covenant. And who is his, and who is his mission to? Gentiles. Gentiles. But this says I'm making a new covenant with Israel and Judah, not Gentiles. Israel and Judah are specific nations, are specific parts of a <coughs> nation, right? The northern and southern kingdom of Israel. All right. So but, side note, we'll come back to. Yeah, how does that tie into Hebrews eight? It pretty much echoes that, or says the same thing. It does. Yeah. It does. You're exactly right. Hebrews eight is essentially the parallel passage here, Brian. What what Hebrews eight does is demonstrates pretty definitively that dispensationalism is not true. But I don't have time to run into that this morning. But it's a good question. I mean, Hebrews 8 obviously establishes that the new covenant is fulfilled in Christ. Um, is what Hebrews 8 is establishing. So, all right, let me continue on. Just just throw that out there and let it stick in your craw, because most of you are dispensationalists or have been raised dispensationalists. So was I. So just give you something to chew on for a couple weeks until we get there um, and start talking about that. All right, he made a new covenant with the Jews that went to the Gentiles, but I wonder if that verse is literal. Okay, anyway, let's, let's go on. Verse 32, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. What covenant did they break? What covenant did they, he make when he took them out of Egypt? The old covenant or the Mosaic covenant, right? Okay, you made that. Co you guys follow me on that? So they broke that covenant. I'm going to make a new covenant, not like that one. What was wrong with that one? They broke it. <laughs> okay, you follow. All right. Okay. All right. Is that clear enough? All right. Now let's go on. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Okay. Now, what's interesting is, did God give them his law in the Old Covenant? Mm -hmm. Yes. Where did he write it? Tablets of stone. Tablets of stone. Where does he write it in the New Covenant? On their hearts. Exactly. That, doesn't Paul reference that in Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, when he starts talking about the, the, his ministry of the New Covenant superior to the ministry of the Old Covenant, because the Old Covenant is written on tablets of stone, the New Covenant is written on the heart, right? Okay. And I will be their God... And they shall be my people. Now, is that new to the new covenant? No. No. Where do you see that before that? Jeremiah thirty-one. Well, you see that, yeah. But where do you see it prior to Jer even the new covenant promise? Uh, to give it the ten commandments, right? Well, you definitely see it in in Exodus when at the Mosaic covenant. You also see it where in Genesis. Mm -hmm. uh, this promise is made to Abraham. Um, in Genesis chapter 17, mm -hmm. I'll be of God and you will be my people. Now the new covenant, that promise, that is, by the way, that is the central promise of, of all the covenants of God, if you will, particularly um, most expressly in, in, in the new covenant, in the sense that Christ has fulfilled all of this, but it's the same central promise of every Old Testament covenant. I'll be your God. 
you will be my people. Please follow me on that. All right. Um, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Well, 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 because in Israel, what happened? Lots of them didn't know the Lord. Right? So in this covenant, he's saying that the members of the covenant will know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now look at Luke 22. Luke chapter 22. I've been teaching this passage and its implications for two weeks. The third week will be this Sunday. And unfortunately, because of one of the implications of this Sunday's sermon, I'm having to preach another sermon um, on one of the implications that I'm giving Sunday. Because I realize that implication is going to float out there. People are going to be like, what? So I'm going to have to teach that. All right. Um, look, look, at, look at Luke 22, 14 through 20. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. That's the hour for the Passover meal. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. That's the first cup, by the way. It's probably the second cup of, uh, there are four cups that were offered in the Passover meal. This is likely the second one. Um, he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten. Now notice that now there's a cup after they had eaten. All right. So a second one that's offered here anyway, they talk about. It. Saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, he's saying he's establishing the new covenant. He's cutting it where? You know? Huh? The cross. All covenants are cut. You guys know that, right? Whenever there's a covenant, it was cut. In fact, the word to cut and the word for covenant are often so often associated that you can cut and have a covenant like you can just say he cut it and it's almost like in the Old Testament language and it's basically like saying a covenant was made. You guys follow? Okay, they're, they're very closely associated. So that um, with the Abrahamic covenant, what's cut? Foreskin is cut as a sign. Very good. Um, but what's, what's also cut? Genesis 15. He cuts all these animals in half, right? Okay. Uh, there's a cutting in Exodus 24 with the Mosaic covenant. And they sprinkle the blood. Remember that? Okay. So these covenants are cut. And in this case, the covenant is cut where? At the cross. In Christ at the cross was the cutting of the new covenant. Okay. And thus the shedding of blood, etc., etc. You guys follow that? Okay. So Jesus has cut this new covenant. Um, and he's done it to save us. Look at Romans chapter 3. And verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been, ma been manifested apart from the law, 
although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified, that's declared righteous and forgiven, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a wrath satisfier, if you will, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And there's that kind of language of the Passover coming in again. Um, Jesus becoming the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, crushed in our place so that we would be forgiven for our sins, so that we would be back in covenant with the Lord. That makes sense. You can follow. All right, that's essential. To, that's essential to worship. Why? What I took time to make two propositions here: that Jesus is the only true worshiper, and that as the only true worshiper, the covenant Lord was pleased to crush him so that we'd be saved. Why do I make that point in discussion about worship? Anybody? should be great cause for worship. Okay, it should be great cause for worship, for sure. Anything else? Who do you worship? I, it's not a trick question. <laughs> God. Okay, the Lord. And what does Jesus tell us when he says to pray and stuff? How does he tell us to address him? Our Father. Our Father. What right do you have to do that? Adoption. So, can you worship apart from Christ? No. This is central to understanding worship. All worship is Christ-centered, or it's not worship at all. You guys follow that? Uh, he's the only true worshiper. The only way we worship is through union with him, through faith. Um, so that we're adopted as sons, so that we can cry out, Abba, Father. Otherwise, we have no right to come before him. That's why you can read things like in First Peter when it talks about, hey, live with your wife in an understanding way. And then he goes on to say, be careful, you might, lest your prayers be hindered. What? <clears throat> now, I just stop and think about that. If you don't love your wife and live with her properly, it may hinder your prayer life. That, that, is that a stunner? Um, and he goes on to talk about later about this idea that God doesn't hear the, the prayers of the unrepentant. What does he mean? Does he mean God's all-knowing. Doesn't he hear the prayers of the unrepentant? Well, he hears them in the sense that he's all-knowing. He hears everything, right? But in the sense that, he, that he's promising to listen and respond to them, he does not. You guys follow that? Unrepentant sin does not, I mean, you cannot be an unrepentant sin and be a worshiper at the same time. Those two things don't go together. Right? Christ is the only true worshiper and you only worship in him. Which is in the state of what? Repentance. 
Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. All right. Um, that's key. It's incredibly key. And by the way, it's true of everything. What are you supposed to do before you're baptized? Repent. Repent. What are you supposed to do before you take the Lord's Supper? Examine yourself, right? Repent. Okay. What what are you what are you supposed to do before you know you offer your gift at the altar? Repent. Go make good with your brother whom you have an unreconciled relationship with. You, you guys it's I mean, I can give a whole bunch of examples, but you guys following it? Okay. Alright. Because you're only able to come to worship in Christ. Alright, you guys follow me on that? Okay. Um, all right, let, let's let's keep moving. The, the covenant Lord, tenth proposition. The covenant Lord made us new creations. Okay? For the purpose of the worship of himself. In other words, what happened to his former creation? It fell. So what are we in Christ? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. For what? For the purpose of worship. Himself. True worship can only happen in the Son by the work of the Spirit. Do you hear that? True worship can only happen in the Son and by the work of the Spirit. In other words, how are you united to Christ? Through faith, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who unites us to the Son. You guys follow me on that? So that He comes into your heart and adopts you. Galatians chapter 4, so that you cry out, Abba, Father. Okay, you guys are familiar with that text? Galatians 4. So, worship only happens in the Son by the Spirit. That's why in 1 Corinthians, for example, chapter 3 and 6, we are called the temple of the Lord. Now, I want to be clear because that's not a singular you, but a plural you. You by yourself are not the temple of the Lord. Jesus is the temple of the Lord by himself. You were not. Okay? The church is the temple of the Lord. It's, it's like you running around saying, I'm the church. No, no. You're not the church. You're a Christian. The church is the gathering of God's people. The, the word church has the idea of gathering or assembly in it. You can't gather by yourself. You guys follow me on that? Okay. So you, are, you might be a member of the church, or at least you should be, and you are perhaps um, a member of God's temple, part of God's temple, but you're not it by yourself. You just follow me on that? Okay. Um, that's why all this talk about, you know, oh, you're smoking, your, your body's a temple of God. It's a little bit goofy. Okay. It's true that when you commit sexual immorality, Paul says, do you not know that you've been united to Christ? And so why would you, why would you wed Christ to a prostitute? Right? In other words, when you commit sexual immorality, what Paul's saying is, because of your vital union with Christ, when you commit sexual immorality, you're dragging Jesus into your sexual immorality. Mm -hmm. Why would you do that? Because you're the temple of, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit, the temple of God. The idea is, and that's not just you by yourself, but that's true of the whole church. Okay, all right. Um, we're the temple of the Lord, and what have we been made into? <coughs> the kingdom of what? Priest, isn't that is that a stunner? Look, look with me. I'm, I just want to drive at these a little bit. Look at Second Corinthians four um, quickly, and then we're gonna we're gonna look at chapter five as well, just a little bit. But um, you 
Now we might jump over to Romans 6 and 1 Peter as well. But look at um, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Paul's talking about the way he, and he approaches ministry. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of, unbelie of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we have this in Christ. You guys follow me on that? Now what is he contrasting to, if you read what's just come before that, go back to chapter 3. Say we're preaching this gospel, but if you go back to chapter 3, there's this contrast. Look at verse 7. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. In other words, talk about the old covenant's been put away, it's been abrogated. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So he's talking about this new covenant ministry, which actually unveils our faces and makes us increasingly into the glory of God, um, or the glory of Christ, who himself is, verse 4 of chapter 4, the image of God. In other words, what were we failing to be? Image bearers, right? Proper image, who was a proper image bearer? Jesus. So what's the Holy Spirit transforming us into in the new covenant? Proper image bearers from one degree of glory to another were being transformed into what? Verse 18, the same image. As who? Christ. You just follow this reclaiming in a sense of the fall of the garden that's happened in the garden. We lost, in a sense, the image of God. Not in the full sense. We still are image bearers, but a proper image bearing. Jesus has come as the proper image bearer. And now we're being transformed into his glory. Right? You guys follow that? Okay. Um, there's, there's a lot more to say about this passage, but I don't have time. Jump, jump to 1 Peter 2. Um, for the sake of time, I'll try to
I want you to I want you to hear all of the all of the Old Testament language here, okay? I want you to hear it. Put verse one. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, I want you to hear this, a living stone. Now, now why in the world do they call Jesus a living stone? Maybe you know? Yeah, but I'm asking for the biblical imagery. Cornerstone. <laughs> Thank you. Of what? Church. Kind of a temple, right? Yeah. Okay. You follow. So he's gonna get. He's getting. He's hitting at temple language here, isn't he? From the Old Testament. Okay. That's exactly right. And what does it say? He's rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He's also the stumbling stone of the Old Testament. So the, both of these things are picked up. Okay. Um, you yourselves like living stones. Now, now listen to this. You like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. What's he talking about? Where's the spiritual house in the Old Testament? Temple built with stones. Right? You guys follow the imagery here that's being picked up? Okay? To be what? A holy priesthood. To offer sac spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through who? Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So I'm not even going to get into the implications of that <laughs> statement. Okay, now look what it goes on to say. But you are a chosen race. Now, now who was a chosen race before? Israel. Israel. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Who In Exodus 19, what was Israel supposed to be? Kingdom of priests, right? A holy nation. Now, now, who was God's nation prior to this? Yeah, uh, yeah. A people for His own possession. Now, who who are the people for His own possession? Israel. I mean, I, I don't I don't know how else you can that you may what proclaim the excellencies. So here comes worship, right? You may proclaim the excellencies, and mission, by the way, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, he's going to use Hosea, basically. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what I'm trying to drive at here is that, that we are the temple of the Lord. We have the new covenant inscribed on us. We're being made into the image of of Christ by the Spirit. We are a kingdom of priests, a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, for the proclaiming of his excellencies. We are living stones in the temple he's building. 
You guys understand why I'm getting this proposition based on all the propositions I've given before this? All the ends are being tied up. If you have all these loose ends of Old Testament imagery, they're all being tied together in Christ and his people. You guys follow me on that? So that we are now his worshipers. We're the old creation, what we were, now we're the new creation. I can just go through a list of things here to tie up all these Old Testament ideas that are coming to fruition in Christ and in Christ and, and by the Spirit in Christ's people. Okay. Um, all right. I won't keep going on, though, because it'll be too long. Eleventh proposition. The covenant Lord commanded us to continue to spread his worship across the earth. Right? Thus spreading the bounds of his temple. So, for example, where do we get those commands? Matthew 28. Not, not a new command in one sense. What does God tell Adam and Eve to do in the garden? Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. In other words, spread this across the earth. What happens with Jesus? What does he command his disciples to do? Go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, which that's a naming ceremony. Baptism, you guys follow that? Okay. When you were born, your parent na parents named you Curtis or Brian or right, Kyle or Jay. Your parents named you that. And as you got older, you knew that when that word name was used, that was talking about you. Right? Baptism is essentially a naming ceremony, as I talked about. So that when you're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, you now belong to the Trinitarian God. Your life is His. You're a Christian. You're a Jesus person, if you will. You guys follow me on that? His name is over you. Right? You're identified with Him. Um, and He says, go identify the nations with me. Right? And then do what? Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And then he gives a promise, which isn't new to the New Testament. It's, it's true in um, Exodus when God speaks to Moses. It's true in Judges when God speaks to Gideon. What is it? And I will be with you. Always what's new is that Jesus is now co-opting that for himself. Moses says, who am I that I should go? And, uh, you know, essentially, what does the Lord say? I will be I'll with be with you. Gideon, I'm the smallest of all. What does the Lord say? I'll be with you. Right? You guys follow me on that? Jesus gives the apostles the command, go take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You know what they're thinking? How are we going to do that? I'll be with you. Right? There's the promise that comes with it. In incidentally, just so you know, for the book of Matthew, this is a freebie. I'll throw in extra. I'm not going to charge anything extra for it. When you, uh, when you look at the book of Matthew, what does Jesus declare at the beginning of the book? And he's named. He's named Emmanuel, right? You, he will be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God with us. And what does he say of himself at the end of the book? I'll be with you. That's an inclusio. You guys know what an inclusio is? It's a Hebrew literary device. Even though this book's written in Greek, they still use Hebrew forms of writing. It's a literary device like bookends. And the bookends just essentially tell you everything in between here has something to do with these bookends. God with us. I will be with you. Everything in this book 
Matthew structured into this idea of God being with us, right, in Christ. All right, um, there's, there's several inclusios, actually, in the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew really is a fan of using them. Um, Paul uses it in, in Romans as well. The obedience of faith is at the, in Romans 1, verse 5. Then if you go to Romans chapter 16, at the very end, he also talks about the obedience of faith among the nations there. Um, uses that as an inclusio. All right. Um, the covenant Lord told us to spread as the bounds of the temple, right? Bringing more people to Christ. All right. Twelfth proposition. The covenant Lord gave us commands for how to worship him. I want you to follow this. He gave us commands for how to worship him in daily life and in corporate worship as priests in his temple. Right? Okay, you guys follow me on that? In other words, he didn't just give commands to Old Testament Israel as to how to worship him as priests in his temple. He gave them to us too as to how to worship him in his temple. So let's, um, let's look at some of them. Why don't you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm just going to give you a sampling of a few of them. There's tons, by the way, of places I could look at textually, but I'm, I'm going to look at a couple of them places. Um, actually, for the sake of time, um, let's just look at Ephesians 5. And... Ephesians 4 tells you all about how you walk daily with the Lord, right? So don't walk like Gentiles do. In other words, the futility of flesh, but walk this new life in the Spirit, etc., etc. Put away all the sin. Walk in holiness. Daily worship. You guys follow me on that? Okay, so Ephesians 4 is easy enough and quick enough to summarize. Daily worship, walking in holiness with the Lord. You guys got it? Okay. Ephesians 5 um, drives that home a little bit more with regard to to a kind of corporate worship, you get down here in verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Incidentally, that word wine is, wine is the agent doing the, getting, doing the work of getting you drunk. I prefer actually the translation, do not get drunk by wine. Why? Because it, Paul's point isn't that, you know, I don't want you to have a whole lot of wine in your system. Like, so your belly is sloshing around with wine. That's not, do you have a lot of wine in you? His point is, I don't want you to be drunk by it. In other words, I, I don't want you to feel the effects of the wine, which is drunkenness. You guys follow me on that? Okay, he doesn't mean I don't want you to like, you know when you drink a lot of water and the water sloshes around yourself? He's not talking about that. Okay, as if the wine, is, having a bunch of wine in your body is the problem. The problem is what wine does to you. It's an agent that does something to you, right? What does it do to you? It makes you drunk. You guys follow? Okay. Don't be drunk by wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled, and I actually think this is best translated, by the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit is not a substance in that sense who fills you, Okay. Like, he, you could have less or more of him in that way. It's talking about he's the one, he fills you, he's the agent who fills you. Okay, he's the one who, he does something to you. You follow? Okay. Is the, the Spirit dwell in all believers? Yeah. Can you have more of him? 
No, he didn't just give you a little piece and he's going to give you more later on. Okay, that's not that's not how spirit works, by the way. Okay, I give it a little bit now, a little bit more later, and pretty soon you'll be all filled up with me, right? Okay, if that's what it meant by filling, then at some point you're going to pop, right? <laughs> because because he's too big for you. All right, so here, here's here's the here's the point, right? All right, what's he talking about here? So like he's the agent who does the filling. So what is the what does he fill you with then? If the agent does the filling. What does he fill you with? Look at the next phrase, verse nineteen, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. What's he filling you with? Worship. And specifically here, by the way, this does not mean psalms are the Old Testament psalms and hymns are, you know, the 18th century hymns and then spiritual songs are Maranatha praise songs. That's not, what, that's not what's happening here, okay? That is not what this text is saying. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms or songs are all talking about um, the songs the church sang, which are in the Word. Okay? In other words, you're being filled with what? And addressing one another with what? The word. But you're not just addressing one another with the word like it's an academic exercise. You're addressing one another with the word as if it's a as it as an exercise of worship. That's why you're singing. Joyful. It's this joyful singing. Well, sometimes somber. Sometimes not joyful in the sense of happy, but joyful in the in the sense of I I'm thanking the Lord, but it's a very difficult even suffering. There are psalms of suffering, right? darkness, etc. So you're you're singing this and making melody to the Lord with your all your heart. And what else are you doing? Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you're not just being filled with um, just the word of God and singing it to one another or sharing with one another, but you're being filled with what? Thanksgiving for the Lord and what he's done in Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit's, he's the agent filling you with the word and worship and thanksgiving, you guys follow? Okay. So how do you know when you're being filled by the Holy Spirit? When you speak in tongues. When you speak? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Man, you made my implication point really clear for me, Kyle. That I feel really close. Yeah, that's a real. No, how do you know when you're being filled by the Holy Spirit? Because you are being filled up with the Word of God, and you are rejoicing. You're giving thanks. You're you're meditating on the word. You're speaking the word into one another's lives. You, you guys follow? Okay. That's why a lot of times you walk away from church feeling not full. If your pastor doesn't teach you the word. Because what's the Holy Spirit not doing when the pastor's not using the means of grace? The means of grace preaching the word of God? What's the Spirit not doing then? He's not working through the means of grace to fill you with the word because your pastor is not employing the means of grace in his preaching. So you walk away fully feeling empty. Right? Or as one of my friends said, it's like Chinese food sermons. I think, man, that tasted really good, but I'm hungry an hour later. <laughs> right? <laughs> you guys follow? Um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, Fill you with the word and cause you to chew on it, right? That's a problem, okay? Um, so, all right, go go to um, man. There's a whole bunch more I could look at, but go to let's go to First Timothy four. I'll show you another. So, the idea is that there's this singing 
of the Word of God and worship, right? Corporate worship. There's the singing of the Word of God that's being filled by the Word of God and singing and giving thanks. Um, in daily worship, there's this obedience to the Lord and constant walking with Him in the Spirit and not and putting away the works of the flesh. You guys follow? That's daily worship. All right, so some more corporate worship stuff. First Timothy chapter 4, as Paul is instructing Timothy um, with regard to leading the church, in 1 Timothy 4, he tells him, um, verse 6, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. What, what things are those? Those things that he just mentioned, which is tell them about the fact that there's false teachers. Right? Who are teaching doctrines of demons. Make sure you know, if you do, you'll be a good servant. Incidentally, if your pastor doesn't do that, he's not a good servant of Christ Jesus. Um, it's, it's the exact opposite of how our culture feels. Our culture feels like if, you ever, if your pastor does that, why is, he, why is he focused on doing his job? It's not his job to do that. What's he doing? Well, according to Paul, he's a good servant of Christ Jesus. If he does it, which means if he doesn't, he's a bad servant of Christ <coughs> Jesus. Um, that sticks right in the craw of our culture, by the way, even our evangelical subculture. I'm not saying your pastor should spend all his time doing this. Then he has a problem as well. Okay, but this, if this never happens for him, that's a problem. Right, okay. He goes on. Being trained in the words of faith and in the good doctrine you have followed, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For this end we toil and strive because we have... We have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Now listen, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. <coughs> By the way, your youth, Timothy's probably about 35 here. Um, let no one despise you for your youth, but set, an, for the believe, set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, now listen to what he's telling him to do. Come where? Ephesus. That's where he's at. He's pastoring in Ephesus here. Until I come, devote yourself to the what? Public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. So what are some things that, are supposed to, that this pastor is supposed to do with this congregation? Read the word, exhort them, teach them. Warn them of false doctrine. Look at verse 15. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, or the doctrine. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Okay? Go to 2 Timothy, just, just so we can see that Paul gives a similar kind of advice. Try to land it really quickly. 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul teaching Timothy, after he's told him that Scripture is sufficient... Uh, for everything in life and godliness. In chapter 4 he says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Now, I just want you to stop and consider this charge. You're in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. You hear the weightiness of the charge? Now, what's he told? Preach the word. Right? Be 
ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. All right, so I can go on and on about commands that are given for corporate and individual worship, all through Scripture. Okay, I, we can go on and on about them. Um, they're in all of Paul's letters. Usually the second half of every one of Paul's letters has these kinds of commands. Um, obviously, baptism is commanded in corporate worship. Obviously, the Lord's Supper is commanded in corporate worship. Singing is commanded in corporate worship. Right? Public reading of scripture is commanded in corporate worship. Prayer is commanded in corporate worship. You guys have seen all this, right? Okay. Um, what about taking an offering? That happens all the time. Is that ever commanded in public worship? 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, verse 1, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, what day is that? Sunday. Sunday. And why would they do it on Sunday? Because they gathered then for corporate worship on Sunday. Why'd they do that? Because it's the Lord's Day. Okay, all right. <laughs> On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you credit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. In other words, I, every time you gather for the corporate worship on the Lord's Day, I want you to put aside a collection for what? At this point, he's taking a collection, an offering, to help the church in Jerusalem who's in famine. By the way, I... Well, I'm not going to make the point. I was just going to save it. So here's the point. You have the Lord's Supper, baptism, preaching, public reading of scripture, prayer, singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, taken offering, all commanded in corporate worship. You have living godly in Christ Jesus, right? Um, obeying him, meditating on his word. I go through a little thing. Commanded in day-to-day -day worship. You guys follow me on that? Okay. If you go to Romans 12, you get more day-to-day -day worship stuff, right? Um, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay? Then we could go on and on. The covenant Lord has given us commands for how to worship him in daily life and in corporate worship as his priests. You guys follow that? Okay? In Christ, by the Spirit, doing these things. Okay? And not doing these things. Follow? All right. Now, last proposition. The covenant Lord will consummate his kingdom and we will worship him forever in his cosmic temple. Right? Um, he will consummate his kingdom and we will worship him forever in his cosmic temple. Revelation 21 and 22 are clear about that. We're going to do the eschatology after I'm done with Doctrine of the Church, so I'm not going to spend really any more time on that proposition. I just want to make sure that you guys understand. That when you get to Revelation 21, what do you start to see again? What's present in 21 and 22? Tree of life. Why? Because we're in a sense back to the garden. The Lord has created a new heavens and a new earth where we worship him forever. And the, he is the temple. You guys, you guys follow that? There. Okay. All right. And that imagery is all there in Revelation 21 and 22. I'm not going to read it. You can read it. We'll come back to it, though, when we do eschatology. Okay. Doctrine of the end things. All right. So what are the implications of all this? Let me just give you a couple. 
typical worship in the Old Testament, okay? But you guys know what I mean by typical? I don't mean typical like, oh, that's typical, he does that. Typical like types. What are types? Pictures, right? Okay? Things that they did, okay? Typical worship in the Old Testament was what? It had a temple, physical temple. That was a type, right? Of the Christ and his people, okay? The temple, it had festal calendars, so all year long you had a calendar in which you did certain sacrifices and events. All of those feasts are fulfilled in who? Christ. Christ. Right? It had circumcision, which has been fulfilled in Christ and replaced by baptism, if you will. There's not a, a total correspondence, but there's at least quite a bit of correspondence, okay? They had Passover. Who fulfilled that? Jesus. Okay? And what's that replaced with? The Lord's Supper. Okay? They had sacrifices. Who fulfilled those? Jesus. They had a Sabbath. Who fulfilled that? Jesus. He is our Sabbath rest. Okay? And I could go on and on. Those are all types of the Christ. What Hebrews 10 calls shadows. Okay? And we have the reality. All right? Okay. It's been fulfilled. All of that's been fulfilled in the what they call, scholars would call the anti-type. What is the anti-type? The, the fulfillment, the, the one to whom all the types pointed, who is Jesus. And now we worship in him by the Spirit. You guys follow me on that? So these are all the ways they worship. If you will, did the Old Testament form of worship have greater outward glory? Glory? It did, right? Their worship had greater outward glory. You came to this huge building. You had all these people thronging there, right? You, you. When they did Passover, they, uh, you know, they'd slaughter um, Day of Atonement, man. They slaughter these sheep, and I mean, it would run. The blood would run through the streets. I mean, it was the stench. Hundreds of thousands of these sheep would be killed. Okay, um, you would have massive music, the lighting of these huge torches. I mean, the the worship attended there had massive outward glory. You guys follow me on that? Was part, huh? of, that, was part of that point to like draw people in within like Old Testament Israel? And I think so, and to sort of demonstrate the holiness and seriousness of who, who you're worshiping. Okay, so you have all this outward glory. In the New Covenant, the worship of the church does not have as much outward glory. Right? It has Christ. And then by the Spirit in Him, we, we worship. You guys follow me on that? doesn't have all that outward glory has been sort of, if you will, done with. But it has more inward power. <clears throat> follow me on that? Because the anti-type is better than the types. Um, and the elements of that worship are preaching the word, and prayer, and baptism, and the Lord's Supper, and taking an offering, and... You, Okay, you guys follow me on that? Reading, public reading of scripture, those are the elements of that of that worship. None of those have great outward glory, do they? Unless we sort of build pseudo-temples and throw out fog and put robotic lighting on it, then it's sort of got some outward glory. But uh, apart from that, it really doesn't, right? I mean, it's just sort of, uh, sort of mundane. And also replace the Lord's Day. Not a particularly glorious thing in that sense, outward glory. It's just you gather to worship and read the word together and you you know that's it right it's not particularly exciting stuff okay 
That's possible. Gold dust from our air conditioning system. Yeah, you could, you could, you could. That's good. We could blow <laughs> gold dust and smoke. So talk about the the, the glory cloud coming down. <laughs> all right, um, all right. I vote for that. <laughs> awesome. I'm just gonna let you know it's gonna go bad if the glory cloud's there. Yeah. <laughs> go really badly. So when Luther and Calvin got into a fight in the Reformation, I want you to know what they got into a little argument over. Okay, one of the one of the couple things, but one of them was big. Um, Calvin and the Reformed went down one road, and the Luther and the Lutherans went down another road. Okay, and that was over. Yes, we know the outward glory isn't as great. Yes, we know there are things commanded in Scripture. Yes, we know that clearly in the Old Testament, Old Covenants, you could only do. What was commanded, you could not add to what was commanded. You only did what was commanded. No additions. Okay, They got that. Where they parted was, can you add to what's commanded in the New Covenant? Luther said, yes, you can add to what is commanded. He, he didn't quite reform the church as much. He didn't like what the Catholic Church was doing because he thought they were doing things that were expressly forbidden. He said, the Catholic Church is doing things that are expressly forbidden. Setting up icons, right? Um, participating in all kinds of worship that's expressly forbidden. It's idolatrous, he'd call it. But he said, the church can do anything that the Bible doesn't forbid. Okay? So we, we do the things it commands, we can do anything it doesn't forbid in worship. Um, right? Catholics are doing things it forbids, but we can do anything it doesn't forbid. He call it, it's called the normative principle of worship. That's what... That's what Theologians call it normative principles of worship. Big implication. The reform, following Calvin, said no. God hasn't changed. You still have to worship Him the way He commands. You don't get to add things to His work to the worship of Him. So you can't. You can only do in worship what God commands. You guys hear that? One case. You can do anything God doesn't forbid. The other case, you can only do what he commands. You hear the difference? Are you talking corporate worship or lifestyle corporate worship. worship? Corporate worship. Corporate worship. And they called, Calvin's view was called the regulative principle. Mm -hmm. So that God regulates worship by the word. And Luther's was called the normative principle. They follow the difference? You can add things if you want to as long as they're not forbidden. Okay? Luther saw a lot of things being forbidden, by the way. But as long as they weren't forbidden, you could, you could add them. Or, what? You can only do what's expressly commanded in the Word. Regular principle, normative principle. Okay? Um, at Sovereign Grace, we follow what would be much more closely aligned with Calvin, which is the regular principle. In other words, I don't like to add things to worship that God doesn't command. Because some, some huh? examples of that, what did that look like? Yeah, what are some examples of adding things to worship God as a command? In oh, which, well, which mean, generation? As as in normative, compared to the Lutheran and, and Calvin's. As far as what? Okay, so so for example, um, and and there there are debates about how this how this looked, but Luther was not as opposed, for example, to instruments in worship as Calvin was. Calvin did not like musical instruments in New Covenant worship because he did not believe that anywhere in the New Testament were we commanded to use worship, instruments in worship. That would be a, a, dif a distinction. 
Nowhere we commanded to use them. The first thousand years of the church, they were never used, by the way. They're expressly forbidden for the first thousand years of church history. That is pretty much indisputable. Nobody used instruments. But they were forbidden? or They, they were forbidden, forbidden for the first thousand years of church history. Then they came into practice in the medieval period by the church. Nobody in Christianity practiced the use of instruments in worship. Um, they came into use in the medieval church period from about the 11th century until about the 16th century. Um, and then um, Luther was happy to continue to use them. Calvin was not. The reform were not, so they tossed them out um, of use. Uh, later on, the reform decided that instruments were not really a um, hindrance to, or were not really an addition to corporate worship. In other words, so they started making what they call it a distinction between substance and accidents. Substance, we're commanded to sing. Okay? Whether that song is led vocally or that song is led instrumentally is just accidental to the singing. They follow. Mm. And so the Reformed changed their tune on that. <laughs> so they said, instruments are okay as long as the singing is biblical. But they did fight over what biblical meant. Because, for example, um, the church only sang psalms. Because why would we have songs that are written by men when God has given us 150 of them that are inerrant. God's given us 150 inerrant worship songs, so why are we writing errant ones? That's That was their question. And actually, so when the first hymns were started getting written by Isaac Watts, he was considered a liberal. Now just stop and think about that. <laughs> I'm talking about these... You know, four, five stanza, doctrinally rich hymns. He was considered a liberal for writing those because he's writing the words of men. He's introducing the singing of the words of men into the church. And they said, listen, you're teaching as doctrines in the church, the doctrines of men, and you're replacing the doctrine of God, which is taught in the Psalms, that we should be singing. So you're replacing the Psalms, God's music, book he gave to the church with the words of men. And so they had a big tiff over that historically. Um, now I, I want you to hear this. The reason eventually the Reformed churches came to the position that it was okay to sing the hymns is because they believed that if the words were doctrinally true then they were in conformity with scripture and thus you were singing the word of God because you were singing true things. You follow me on that? Okay. Um, However, they were very vigorous about making sure the words were doctrinally true or sound. Mm -hmm. Because we don't want to introduce anything into the worship of the church that is not. Now, listen, almost nobody thinks about that anymore. It's just like Jesus is my girlfriend all day long, <laughs> right, in the worship service. Okay, so... Say so Christian radio could really benefit from some of that scripture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. But I, I want you guys to think about the shift that's happened in the church. This is a major shift. I know this all sounds so foreign, but for the for several, I mean, almost two thousand years, literally, the church wrestled over this kind of stuff in substantial ways, and now we're like, hey, let's sing the same ten words twenty five or thirty times. 
even if nobody exactly knows what they mean because they're so dang vague, you can import whatever you want into them. There's not even a question anymore about why are in the worship of God are we singing? I mean, like, nobody even wrestles with it. I actually wrestle with it. Am I okay with the fact that in the worship of God we're singing um, songs that weren't written by him when he wrote songs for us to sing? God wrote songs for us to sing. Why don't we sing them? And I wrestle with that. Right? I actually think about it. I'm not saying that I've gotten to the point where I say we always sing songs. But it's something we ought to wrestle over. There's 150 inerrant songs. You, you want to know something? It was not unusual a couple of centuries ago for every single member of the church, children, adults, to have all 150 psalms memorized. Memorized. You want to know why? Because that's what they sang their whole life. What do you do with music? You memorize it. Can you imagine if you memorized all 150 psalms? I think I have more than 150 songs memorized. <laughs> <laughs> you probably do. Imagine if you... I've got songs memorized from high school that I wish were gone out of my head. <laughs> Mostly rap that is incredibly inappropriate. And I think to myself, man, I can reproduce it quick and it's bad. So, <clears throat> imagine if you grew up, though, singing psalms. Yeah. And yet I'm all memorized. I mean, this was a real conviction. Do you guys follow me on that? And so they actually fought over this kind of stuff. I mean, they argued over it. We didn't even talk about it. It's like not even part of our conversation. And I'm, that's where I, I would ask you guys to... I'm not telling you that you should go and, you know, go find a church that doesn't use instruments and that only sings the psalms or whatever. What I am saying is that you should at least wrestle over that question. About the content of the songs you sing. And what's happening in worship. You guys follow me on that? Would you be okay if your pastor's sermons were as vague as some of the songs you sing? <laughs> some are. Honestly. I'd be some him. are. Yeah, I know, Jim. <laughs> Should you be okay with that? Right, you guys, you guys. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Yeah. But you're right. So you get into this kind of question. And, and so, so, for example, accidents and accidents in essence. Like, like um, if we're going to preach, preaching the word is commanded. Okay, There's es- the essence of a command. The accidents of it would be adding amplification to it. So you amplify a sermon. Now, whether he, whether you amplify the sermon or not, the essence is the same. You guys follow? And so the accidents, and so the church started discussing what, are, what, what, how do we make an, a distinction between essence and accidents? And, and there, the basic position of the Reformed Church today, actually, really the position that I would follow today personally, that we follow at Sovereign Grace, is um, and, and we need to keep the essence of all these commands though the accidental circumstances around them may be somewhat different or distinct. Um, and, and, and there's, but it's still worth thinking through. Because there are times when the accidental things can actually mess up the essence of the commands. You have to think about that. In other words, there, the idea that medium is always, um, or media is always neutral, is a false notion. And so you have to think about, you have to think about that. You guys follow me on that? It's false. The medium is not just neutral, and and then all 100 percent of the time, it's just not. It's just not the case. So such as um, there is a difference between reading and hearing. To say that you know it doesn't matter if you um, ever read, or, you know, versus if you ever we 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 know culturally that it matters that you read. It's important to read. It's good for the culture that we're a literate culture as opposed to just an oral culture. But I'm not saying it's immoral to be an oral culture. Okay, I don't want you to make that 
I'm saying that it, it isn't just neutral to be an oral or a literate culture. You guys follow me on that? Um, uh, God chose to write a book. Right? He, he chose a medium. So it's not entirely neutral. You guys follow me on that? Okay. Um, but, but then you get into debates. Those are high-level cultural debates. I don't have time to have now. But you get into debates about what medium are beneficial to the church and which ones are problematic. Okay, I'm, John? How about preaching the gospel through sending out videos instead of missionaries? That yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a medium question, right? Exactly. Is that, I mean, one of the debates, one of the big debates raging now, I encourage you guys to think about, is the whole issue of video venues. Videoing a pastor to another place. Um, and one of the big questions people have is, hey, wait a minute. I mean, like, oh, you know, all the churches are doing it. Yeah, one of my buddy's churches did it, and his churches imploded when it lost him. <coughs> gone. The church is gone. I mean, he, he, he resigned, and the church ends as of December 31st. 15,000 people to zero in three months. Gone. Right? Because it was set up on him. Video venues, when you get into those discussions, people have to start having real discussions about why is it that at a location we require a live band, but at a location, and I'm not saying, I'm not giving you a conclusion, I'm saying you need to wrestle through these questions. Why is it at a location we give a live band, but at a location we don't have to have a live preacher? What are we saying about the importance of the congregation interacting with the band, but we're not saying that about the congregation interacting with the live preacher? Mm -hmm. Those are questions worth asking. I'm not drawing conclusions, okay? They're questions that you ought to wrestle through. I'm not telling you how to think on it. I'm not giving you a conclusion. You ought to wrestle through those questions, though. Because we're just assuming the medium is always neutral. That's not a good assumption. We really need to think through it. You can also say, you know, you, you're talking about uh, the church that imploded after the pastor resigned. You can also say the same thing that don't set up secession for pastors. A lot of churches that... Uh, have a dominant pastor, that pastor leaves, the church dies. That's exactly right, Jim. Olive Drive is a, a, is a big example of that. And uh, go on. It's yep. dominant pastor through the 80s. He, he, he retires, dumps uh, down to... That's exactly, that's exactly right. And this is the issue there. I don't want to make correlation causation mistakes with what happened at Mars Hill. And, okay, I don't make correlation causation I'm not saying there's a correlation between him, him stepping down and the church going kaboom, right? It's gone. It the correlation, I don't want to just blame it on video venues. My point is that the, the claim is that video venues are these separate campuses with their own pastors, and that when the main guy leaves, that those video venues just become their own churches, and they'll be just fine. But that, that the experience doesn't show that to be true. You guys follow me on that? Okay, so those, those become real questions. And, and then the question about the, the whole medium question. Is there any, you want to wrestle is there anything different with having a live preacher in the room or watching it on a video? Do you, do you have the same opinion with uh, churches that have overflow rooms? Oh, yeah, same, I think it's a wrestle. Same yeah, but I'm saying, but I, I didn't give an opinion. I just said wrestle with just the question. I, I wrestle with that, absolutely. Um, Mark Dever is doing an overflow room right now. He doesn't believe in it, actually having an overflow room, but his church has overflowed. Yeah. So they have an overflow room, but he brought Tabiti, you know, Tabiti back. Um, and the meeting's going to take like three or four hundred people, and they're going to plan another church. So the overflow room is an intentionally temporary measure um, on their part. But they've told the congregation, we hate doing this. We're going to do it temporarily. 
and then we're going to send a group of you out when you're ready to go. Um, but I think those are things that are worth wrestling over. We just assume it all, guys. We just assume it and go, this is what the church has all, always done. No, it isn't. And there's not, no thinking to be done about this. No, this is the worship of God. Like, it doesn't something you just take lightly and just do because it's always been done. You just follow me on that? Because, by the way, always been done is just, we have such a short-term historical memory. We think if it goes past the 20th century America, like it didn't exist. We think if it's always been this way in my lifetime, it must have just always been that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Our memory is short-term. I should understand, they, they, debated, they, they debated over musical instruments in the church for longer than America's been around, right? Okay? They did not allow musical instruments in the worship of the church four times as long as we've been a nation. And just stop and consider that sometime. You follow me on that? All right. Um, but when when you go and find a church that says, ah, we're like the Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America, if you go to that church, they don't they just sing psalms, they don't use any instruments. You go there and go, what a bunch of weirdos. <laughs> right? Hey, 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 like, you know what? They're actually in closer continuity to church history than you are. From the perspective of church history, you're the weirdo. Right? They're the norm. From the perspective of our culture, they're the weirdos. But from the perspective of church history, we're the weird. You guys follow me on that? Um, you ought to wrestle with those things. All right, let me pray. Father, thanks for um, your word and, and um, the fact that you have saved us and your son for your worship. That you have worked to apply him to us by your spirit. That he has united us to Christ and now we are kingdom priests, the holy nation. And we have the privilege of worshiping you in our daily lives, living godly in Christ Jesus, and, in, and corporately as we gather as brothers in Christ. We pray that we would honor you in that, that we take seriously who the God is whom we're worshiping, and we take seriously how you want us to worship you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, gentlemen, next week I'm going to jump into actually the issue of gender roles in ministry.